Does everybody know this is a national day of prayer? Yes. This is national day of prayer, and so we'll have prayer today too. How's that? Up oh, here, we got our little baby, and we got a couple uh, folks coming in right now. So we'll wait until they get set it in, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, hang on one sec. Let me go pick this up while she's a uh, national day of prayer. I guess I need this. She hasn't gotten any bigger. Oh no, really small. Okay, we got to get started here. So go ahead and read Psalm one hundred nineteen, verse one sixty nine. Tall. Cross sticks. Uh, mark, sign, signal, monument. And uh, the re Revelation. What's that? The Revelation mark. Uh, it, it's the mark at top actually is a cross. Yes, In right. the Paleo-Hebrew, it's a cross. Mm -hmm. Right, okay. My cry, come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication... Come before you, deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your law sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep, seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Wonderful. Okay, it's a National Day of Prayer, so we'll say something about prayer from May 4th. Uh, we honor God when we ask for great things. It is a humiliating thing to think that we are satisfied with very small results. And that's uh, Dwight Moody said that, so we'll go ahead and ask God for great things. Heavenly Father, here we are in your presence, and we do ask for great things, great things out of your word. We ask for great things as far as uh, your abilities and uh, capabilities of taking care of us in our needs, in our physical needs, in our need for rain, in our need for uh, fellowship and uh, understanding and all of the other things that we're lacking in this world. And Lord, you have shown us great things in the past week with uh, healing for one of our uh, sisters named Carrie, who you've been taking care of. And also for Graham, who took his first steps this uh, yesterday or today, I can't remember. And uh, so we thank you for that, that he is actually getting better and uh, he's progressing slowly. And we want to lift up uh, Don Young, who uh, is still going through his cancer treatments. And we pray for him. We'd also pray in thanks for uh, our brother Bill up in Indiana, who uh, is free of cancer as of a week ago. We found that out and so many other things that you've done, Lord, and I don't mean to exclude anybody. They, these people just came to mind and there are many others that have needs that we would pray for and there are um, praises that we want to thank you for. And uh, of course, we want to commit this uh, this uh, time to you and we want to ask that you bless it and uh, help us to stay close to your word and close in fellowship and to uh, not stray from your wonderful precepts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. First order of business today is um, I uh, mentioned a week ago a guy that was making some negative comments on YouTube, and uh, he never emailed me. And uh, so I, I said, well, he's a troll and et cetera. And afterward, he emailed me. He was upset because he said, uh, you know, uh, you shouldn't have said those things. And uh, uh, come to find out, I want to uh, make sure that everybody knows that I'm going to retract completely what I said because he was misunderstanding me as far as my approach to the law, and I was misunderstanding his comments about that. He was saying that uh, I was teaching serious error in uh, teaching uh, law free or you know complete freedom from the law, 
and we are under God's law, which means we are in Christ and we are free from the law of Moses. So he was thinking of one law, I'm thinking of a different law. And uh, actually, I, I uh, had several really great emails with this guy. And uh, he's very gracious. You know, if it was me, I'd just, you know, click uh, click off and never go back there again. But uh, uh, he's very gracious. He's reading the Romans commentary that I sent him. And uh, he says, I'll see you on uh, Thursday night. And I think he said he watches Sundays, too. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure you all know that uh, uh, out of mistakes can come good friendships. And so I'm really happy about that. And uh, yes, you mentioned his name last week. First. So for those who Oh, Stephen McDonald. That's yes. right. Thank you. I thought I said that when I started and because I wrote it down. And if I didn't say his name, Stephen McDonald, if you see him online, send him hello. And uh, I, I give him full credit. He says he's saved by grace alone and through faith alone. He understands that and he's been a Christian a long time. But there was a misunderstanding, um, especially when he didn't email me after having been given my email address. And I try to always answer emails. I don't go to YouTube and read posts very much, almost <laughs> never. And, uh, you know, I, I am not on Facebook that much anymore either. And something that's happened on Facebook, just so you know, is um, they used to send me, instead of notifications, which they have on your page, you had the option of having an email sent to you for every time somebody tagged you or posted anything. And so I'd get two or 300 emails a day. But that's how I did it. And now I do not know how to use notifications. So unless you tag me, I will never see what you have said about me, ever. If you don't tag me or if you don't post something directly under one of my posts, I'm sorry, I'm not learning a new system. I don't know how to do it. Facebook it confuses me already. And I was very comfortable with receiving two or 300 Facebook emails a day and going through them that way. But I am not gonna go and learn a new system. So if you want to make sure you, I see something on Facebook, tag me or just post on my wall and then I'll see it. Charles, anyway, yes. This is the gentleman you, that you blocked? No, 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 no. That's the, another guy. Yeah, no, no, that. yeah, that, that's somebody else. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's somebody that was yeah, just, to yeah. No, well, you know, you'll find out that if you, uh, if you do either a prophecy update or if you have a Bible study online, that you will continuously get people sending you very bizarre things. I had somebody um, from uh, a sermon that I did in Exodus on the holy anointing oil. Okay, which is something that was used for anointing. We're not there in Leviticus yet, but um, it's used for anointing the high priest, anointing the tabernacle, and et cetera, et cetera. And this week, I had to delete a bunch of comments. Somebody was saying, well, you misinterpreted that. That's actually marijuana. It's, it's pot oil. Yeah, and his, his uh, uh, Google icon was a pot leaf. And, I, you know, some people just have the most bizarre theology. They, they, they read into things. And anyway, I, I'm not going to have that kind of stuff on there, but normally I don't even go read comments because it, it's almost debilitating. Everybody, my thought is people will get onto like a prophecy update and they'll, they'll say all these things negative about you. And it's just a constant stream from them. And I think first, if you don't like what I'm saying, why are you watching? And secondly, go start your own update. You know, if you want people to listen to you, go start your own update. But Anyway, um, I, it's Steve McDonald, good guy. I recommend him, say hi to him, and uh, I, I sent him my retraction and apology for that. We were misunderstanding each other, and uh, I, I uh, was more in the wrong by far. Okay, now before we get into Romans, before, and I think I should do it once in a while, I'm not going to get into any detail, but this is my monthly Table Talk ma yeah, magazine, R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Ministry. This is Reformed Theology. It's, um, it, it, I want to read you just some of the comments that I underlined this month. I, I don't have many, but uh, you'll get the picture, and then we can move on from there, because these are all bearing directly on the Book of Romans, election, predestination, etc. Um, this is from uh, The Grace of Predestination, 12 
um, April. And uh, some comments down towards the bottom. I'll read and then I'll tell you what I underlined. I'll start with this paragraph. His work for the salvation of his people, uh, but in him as the recipients of the benefits of his work. And Paul also explains that we were chosen not because God knew we would be blameless and holy, but in order that we would be, um, uh, that we would be, but in order that we would be blameless and holy. Okay, then he says, our faith and growth in Christ are the result of our election to salvation, not the basis of it. Okay, let me read that again. Now he's taking two categories and he's putting them in as one. Our faith and growth in Christ are the result of our election to salvation, not the basis of it. Okay, what he's doing is he is saying that our faith is given to us by God, and it does say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it can't be speaking of grace, and it can't be speaking of faith, because gift is in a different, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, gender, than grace. Grace and faith are uh, in a different gender than gift. What it's speaking of is the process of salvation. That is the gift. It is by grace you are saved through faith. The entire process is God's gift. You are saved by faith, your faith, and by his grace, it is one process, which is the gift. Okay, but they, they don't take it that way. They say that the grace is a gift, the faith is a gift, and um, you have no um, say in this at all. So our faith and growth in Christ are the result of our election to salvation. If our growth in Christ is a result of our election to salvation, then we would all be super faithful people, wouldn't we? In other words, if our growth is dependent on Jesus, why wouldn't he just make us all super theologians? It's not. It is dependent on us. And that's why the epistles, all the way through the epistles, say that our growth is up to us. They exhort us to do this, don't do this, do this, and don't do this. So they have taken two categories, lumped them into one, and they're wrong on both. Then they go down a little bit. I'll continue reading. Lest we miss the point that we were chosen for the redemption only by grace and not on account of anything we have done or because of our family history, Paul in Romans 9, 6 through 13, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, uses Jacob and Esau as paradigms of God's electing grace. Jacob was chosen for salvation long before he could do anything good or bad. Esau from the same family was passed over for salvation because he, uh, before he could do anything good or bad. Okay, Romans nine sixteen. Is anybody in Romans nine? Did you turn there? No, there's a second ago. Okay, read Romans nine six through thirteen if you have it open. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the nature, the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, down to uh, verse uh, uh, 13. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, older will 
serve will the younger. serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. Okay, does anybody want to know what the problem with that is when he's speaking to us about our salvation? I'll tell you. He's quoting Malachi chapter 1. Here's what it says in Malachi 1. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Israel. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? It's all plural. He's speaking to a group of people. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains. It's speaking to the group of people, about the group of people of, from Esau. Descending, it's not speaking of Esau and Isaac, or I'm sorry, Israel specifically, Jacob and Esau specifically. It is speaking of the descendants. And that's proven by, let me find it very quickly, it's back in Genesis, what, 25 maybe, where it says, um, uh, where, okay, here's what it says that it, it is citing that God elected them before they were born. It says in verse 23 of Exodus 25, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It is speaking of people groups, not the individuals. It is not speaking of individual salvation. Having failed to understand that, they made a faulty commentary on Jacob and Esau, okay? It is not speaking of individual salvation as they apply it here. Going on, he says, um, uh, I'll just read the last paragraph. None of our actions, not even our good choice to believe in Jesus, moved the Lord to choose us for salvation. They deny free will completely and wholly in here, saying that not even our good choice to believe in Jesus moved the Lord to choose us for salvation. It never says anything about that in the Bible. It says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Whosoever um, believes in me, uh, it, me, believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Faulty. Faulty. And when you read these documents, you need to understand the entire context of what they're saying, because if you don't, you're going to get sucked into this type of theology, and it's bad theology. Here's another one from the 14th of um, April. It says, Calvin... This is so ridiculous, I'll just read it to you. Calvin takes from Scripture his view that every part of salvation is authored by God. I have no problem with that. God authors our salvation. Um, he's the author of eternal salvation. He's the author of who we are, etc. He says this includes even our decision to believe. Once again, no free will. We believe only because the Lord made us willing to believe. Apart from grace, we are fully unwilling to believe. Our hearts are dead in sin. Now, I just typed my comment on Ephesians uh, that he's citing, and then Philippians that they uh, referred to later uh, a day ago. Um, I'm sorry, um, what was it? Yeah, yesterday, I think, I typed on Ephesians 2. Anyway, um, it, it, it'll come out in a couple days. But Colossians. Colossians, thank you, which ties in with Ephesians. Thank you, Colossians. Anyway, um, boy, I got all this in my head. That's Colossians I'm in right now. Okay, but anyway, we believe only because the Lord made us willing to believe. Tell me where it says that in the Bible. Anybody, okay? A apart from grace, we are fully unwilling to believe. Our hearts are dead in sin. And dead hearts, here's the, the fallacy that they come up with. Dead hearts, just like dead bodies, cannot move of their own accord. Nobody says that we regenerate ourselves. The Bible says that the Lord regenerates us, but there is a condition on him doing that. What is that condition? Faith. Faith, that we believe. We must not stretch the metaphor, metaphor too far. 
Paul is not saying that human beings are unable to make choices without God's grace, and then they go down. So they say you have no choice in your salvation, but you can make choices. And so they completely equivocate on what the meaning of choose or free will is, completely. And so um, I won't get into it, but it's just very bad theology. Here's another one really quickly from Monday the 17th. This one, talk about illogical thinking. Here comes Susan Garrett. Hello, Susan Garrett. Here we go. It says here, um, I'm going to read from this sentence here. Furthermore, in regeneration, God acts alone and wholly by his grace. He takes <laughs> hearts dead in sin and makes them alive unto him. Now listen to what he says. Giving them the gifts of faith and repentance. Okay? Well, I'm going to tie that in with another verse, which completely contradicts what they say. Now listen, it says, giving them gifts of faith and repentance. Okay? So faith and repentance to them are a gift. Give me a verse that contradicts that completely. So why? Uh, well, because it's important to know, because this is what we're going through in Romans, and this is, when we get to these things, there has to be a logical defense as to why this is correct or not. Why do I read it, though, is what you're asking? I read every morning because I learn a lot from this. I, I learn more theology by reading bad theology than I do good theology, believe it or not, because when you understand what is wrong, then you can process what's right. Here's what we go. Um, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Anybody? No, I'm just, yeah. Go ahead. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Have all men saved. But have all men to be saved and come to repentance. To, uh, saving, is. yeah, to come to repentance. Yeah. Okay, so if faith and repentance are gifts, and the Lord is not slack in in his promises, but he's waiting for people to repent, then what does that mean? It, it means that the Lord is a failure. You see what I'm saying? Do you understand that? If, in fact, faith and repentance are a gift, then his promise of 2 Peter 3, 9 shows that he's a failure because he's asking everybody to repent. But if it's a gift, then his gift is ineffectual in people. You see, you learn more from bad theology often than you will from proper theology because proper theology, you just sit there and you assimilate it. And you may be assimilating something that really isn't proper theology because people that read this think it is. Faith is a is a verb. Is a what? It's a verb. It's like you know. I well, it can be. Faith well, can be a verb or a noun. Right, but but but, but if it exists, it's a noun. But I mean, like in, in what he's saying is to have faith. Right. Okay. To believe. To believe. It's like believe is also a verb. It's like you know you have to do something right. in order to have faith or to believe. That's right. But they're saying that he puts that in you. But if he puts that in you and it's a gift then what Peter said means that he is failing at that. But then why do they publish these things every Be month? Because, because it, it, it doesn't matter. It's Reformed theology. And I'll get to the very last page, and when I do, I'm going to ask a question, and I'm just going to leave it up. I'm not going to ask you to... Charlie, to, doesn't, yes. doesn't your belief in the spirit word, faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word, anybody who wants to spend time in the word... That's right. Can easily That's the entire point. It. So a lot of it is... I mean, it's, it's not that he doesn't give everybody the opportunity to believe if we read his word, but... That's right, but people aren't willing to do that. Earlier, earlier he said, whoever wrote that, was that, in fact, uh, Sproul himself? Or no, what? this is Burke uh, Parsons. Well, he who, said that even if they believe, if they, if they believe without God's gift of, of belief, they, they don't... They, they're not saved. He, it was not this reading. It was the one that was earlier. I, I don't know. 
I, I don't remember. You, you, you read it. I did. <laughs> anyway, go back and watch it later because I, I just want to go on. I just want to get this done very quickly so you understand that there are, there are inconsistencies that you need to be aware of in order to understand what is correct. Here's another one speaking of Pelagianism. Pelagius believed that you had goodness in you and that you were willing to uh, be able to please God. He was a heretic. But what they do is they say, yeah, I'm going to just read the, the sentence here. It says, traditionally, most scholars have said that semi-Pelagianism, uh, I can't, oh, originated in the writings of the French monk John Cassian. So what they're doing is they're taking something called semi-Pelagianism, tying it in with a heretic in order to say that what you believe is heresy. When in fact, semi-Pelagianism, as they put it, is not a heresy at all. Um, so I just, when you see somebody, it would be like me saying semi-Jehovah's Witness, right? That would be me tying you in with a Jehovah's Witness. And so I'm saying you're a heretic because even if it has nothing to do with what a Jehovah's Witness believes. Right. right. Okay. So, um, uh, okay. Down, down here a little bit, it says, um, fallen men and women retain the ability to seek the Lord of their own accord. They need grace to be saved, but God's grace does not take the initiative in salvation. They're saying that God's grace does not take the initiative in salvation. Okay, this is talking about semi-Pelagianism, not them. They're okay. saying that, now, here's where that's wrong. God's grace does take the initiative in salvation. He sent his son to die on a cross. Right. That is the initiative. They're saying that we believe that God doesn't take the initiative in salvation because we believe that we believe and we are saved. And they say, you can't believe and be saved. God must regenerate you in order to believe and be saved. But that right there is God making the initiative in salvation. Right. So they're throwing these, these, these things sideways right. into and their theology. Their, their meaning of grace there is kind of like... Well, no, what he's doing is he's reading, he's equating he's reading that with semi-Pelagianism. That's right. Okay, um, really quickly here. Um, oh, here's, here's one that you will always hear. You're going to hear this anytime you're in the book of Romans and they say that you uh, are not free to believe. We're going to get to this in election very soon in Romans, but they will say um, uh, this is different from Augustinian and biblical theology. Here's another thing they do. They say Augustinian and biblical theology. Anything that isn't Augustinian, therefore, is not biblical theology. They're doing the opposite now that they did by tying you in with the heretic. They're saying that if you don't believe Augustine, who was a man and was filled with errors, that you are uh, not following proper biblical theology. When I don't follow Augustine, there are things that Augustine said that are correct, and there are things that John Calvin said that they're correct, but I don't follow them. I follow the Bible, and if they say something that's in accord with the Bible, then I will accept it. If they don't, then I don't. So I'm not a follower of Calvin, but I read Calvin. I'm not a follower of R.C. Sproul, but I read R.C. Sproul because he says some things that are correct. So they've done the exact opposite. It's the same thing, but in opposite. Then they go on and they say, which says that grace is selective and that the initiative is always the Lord's. That's what Augustine says. He makes the first in salvation. No sinner can seek God of their own accord. And the only people who seek him are those he, whom he first sovereignly and effectually draws by his saving grace. And he cites John 6, 44. Go ahead. No man come to the Father unless... No, no, no man can come to me father. unless the Father draws them, okay? This is the standard text that they will use. Reformed theologians will use John 6, 44. No man can come to me unless the Father draws them. Let me ask you, is John 12 after or before John 6? 
would be after. Oh, it's after. Okay, well, that's important because they say that no man can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. What does it say in John 12, verse 32? It says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Okay, the context of John chapter 6 was that they were the stewards of the oracles of God. He was speaking to the leaders of Israel, and he's saying that no man can come to me unless drawn by the Father. And he's saying that the scriptures are what testify of him. If they won't listen to the scriptures, then they're not going to be drawn to him. He's basing his entire argument on John chapter 5. But he's saying after, after this, in John chapter 12, I will be crucified, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So, the Father is drawing all people to Jesus in contradistinction to what it said in John 6.44. But they ignore that verse, even though it comes after John 6.44. So that's an important thing to remember is that don't get stuck on a single verse because Reformed theology clings to that verse and a few verses in Romans taken completely out of context. I've got one more thing to read you and then we're done with this. This is the last thing. And actually, it's entitled Last Things, when they close out their week monthly devotional. And this is the gospel in Asia, okay? It says, I'm just going to read you two sentences. It has nothing to do with election. It says, a movement of reformed churches is growing in Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, okay? And then down um, in the planting the seed section, it says, these revivals have a mixed legacy, but... We can be thankful for the emphasis on conversion and evangelism. Why would they have evangelism and conversion if God sovereignly chooses people to be saved and you can't thwart God's will? Why would they do that? The reason why we have a church here and the reason why we give money to missionaries is because we believe that people must choose Jesus Christ. Okay? That's why we send money to missionaries, and we support at least four in this little church, and there are others that, from the church that give individually to other missionaries, okay? This is why we do that. The entire premise of what they say is wrong, and you have to be careful, and it's, it is. It's important to know these things, because if you don't know them, then when they say it to you, you say, well, I don't know how to answer that. If you can remember the verses that they selectively choose, you'll be a very well-trained in what is proper theology, okay? That's an important thing to do. So now we are in Romans chapter uh, 4, verse 15, and uh, you go ahead and read that, and I'll pull this up. What? He already read that. You were playing with the dog. Yeah, you were over there playing with the dog. So. They what? <laughs> yeah, uh, we, uh, we brought one of the puppies, just so the people online know, um, one of the ladies wanted to meet our new puppy. And so, oh, maybe you can see it now. I don't know which camera is on right now, but uh, that's our little baby. And one of the ladies wanted to see it and hold it. So um, we brought it in, and that became the, uh, the main source of attention in the church during prayer time and during psalm reading was a puppy instead of the Bible. So, um, uh, um, yeah, you want to go 13. They what? Oh. Yeah, no raffling the dog. Oh, go back to verse 13 and start there. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. And here's 15. Because the law brings wrath, and 
Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay? Law. Speaking of law that can hold you accountable when you violate that law. The law is fulfilled. It is annulled. It is obsolete. And it is nailed to the cross. Okay? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. God is not counting men's sins against them, right? God is not counting men's sins against them. How can he do that? If there's a law and we're violating the law, he must count men's sins against them. But if there's no law, then God is not counting sins, men's sins against them. Here's my comments. It the says, believer. The what? The believer. That's correct. The believer. This, you have to be in Christ in order for this to apply. Right. If you're not in Christ, then you are by default under law and you will be judged by that law. Okay. This is a concept is introduced, which goes back to the very creation of man, and it is found throughout the Bible and throughout human history. The law brings death. wrath. Right, so he, he made the W sign. He didn't finish it, but he had the W sign. Yeah, not death. It brings wrath. Death comes from sin, okay? But the law brings wrath, and then you, you sin. God's wrath comes on you, and then you die. So death is a part of it. That is correct. But the law brings wrath. Man was placed in the Garden of Eden, and he was, in fact, given a law. It was one command, and it was in the negative. You shall not. But it was a command nonetheless. That is a command. Now, um, Reformed theology has, instead of, we are dispensationalists, and I think you all know what dispensationalism is. We believe that there is the dispensation of innocence, and then conscience, and then government, and then you have promise, and then the law then the dispensation of grace, which we're in right now, the church age, and then you have the millennial reign of Christ. Those are the seven dispensations. Reformed theology dismisses that, and they say uh, covenant. Um, they are covenantalists, and so they God is working through certain covenants. The first one they call the covenant of works, and Burke and I were talking about this before the class. The covenant of works is what they call it. God says, don't do this one thing. That's not a work. That's a prohibition, right? They don't have to do anything in order to be saved. They're already in Eden. They're already destined for eternal life if they don't do this thing. It's not a work at all. And plus, it's not a covenant. He didn't make any covenant with them. He just simply said, don't eat of this fruit, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's not a covenant. That's just a warning, okay? So even from the very beginning of the system of covenantalism, you have a fault in, in what is being presented. It is an error to say that it is a covenant of works. It wasn't. It was simply a, a prohibition against doing something. And the implication is that if you don't do that thing, that you will live, right? Because if you say on the day that you surely, uh, on the day that you do this, you shall surely die. Then if you don't do it, then you will live. And that's exactly what the law says in Leviticus 18.5. It says the man who does these things shall live by them. That's right. If you, the, the implication is, under the law of Moses, if somebody was under the law of Moses and they did the things of the law, they would never die. If Moses did the things of the law, he would have never died. If Aaron did the things of the law, he would not have died because the man who does these things shall live by them. All repeats that in the New Testament. Here's a question. Was Jesus a man? Yes. Yes. Did he do the things of the law? Yes. yes and he will never die. He died by man's hand, but he could not stay dead. It says in Acts chapter 2, it was impossible that death could hold him. Okay, so the man who does these things shall live by them. Christ came out of the grave because he did the things of the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. If we move to Christ, 
I move from Adam to Christ, what does that mean about me? I shall not die. That does not mean this physical body. This is a corrupt body. It means that I shall not die. I will be given a body. God has promised it, and I shall live forever. Every person here, I would assume, is called on Jesus. And this is a promise that you don't need to worry about when you're standing next to the deathbed of your husband or your child, looking at them and saying, have you received Jesus? Yes. Then don't worry about what the temporary is. You feel a mourn over your loss. You'll feel sadness. This is normal in human life, but it is not the end of that person. You will see them again, and you will see them forever and forever and forever. Okay, the man who does these things will live by them. If we are in Christ and he has done the things of the law, then we have done the things of the law. That is a promise from God. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we'll go on. It says, um, man was told that he was not to uh, eat of the uh, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If God had not given him this law, then there could have been no penalty for eating the fruit, right? If there's no law, there's no penalty. If he did not say to him, that if you eat of the fruit of the this tree, you shall surely die. If he did not say that, then they could have walked up to that tree and eaten it all day long, and there would have been no ramifications for it at all, okay? Um, it would have been no different to the man than eating any other fruit in the garden. I eat this one, I eat this one. There's no law, no prohibition. I have nothing to worry about. Secondly, if, secondly the law was just. If God told the man, you shall not drink any water, would that have been a just law? Why? You can't live without water. Thank you. Okay? You can live without that fruit. God promised that on the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. You can live without that fruit, and you will die if you eat that fruit. But if he said you are not to drink water, that would have been an unjust law, and God would have been unjust in giving it. Okay? So... It's um, the law would have been unjust because man needs water to exist, and all of you clued into that. However, man didn't not eat need to eat of the fruit of that particular tree. There was other fruit to eat. The law was just, and therefore it was enforceable. A violation of it brought about wrath. Whose fault was it that we fell? It was Adam's fault, and we are in Adam. It is our fault. The state that we are in. Somebody emailed me today. And she, I won't give any specifics about names or places or anything, but she has a son that is not living for the Lord, and she is beside herself. Every time she brings up Christ, he's a mean God, he doesn't exist, he's uh, blah, blah, aliens planted us here, and then they left. Well, if he's a mean God, and he doesn't exist, then how can he be a mean God? The entire premise is convoluted from the beginning. There's no thought going on about what is going on in the world around them. And all this, she asked me, will I be willing to speak to him? I said, of course I will. He can email me anytime, and if you want, I'll email him. He may or may not respond, but I'm willing to do this. And he's got to be willing to say, I don't know everything, because most people in that type of a position know everything. They don't want to hear what you have to say, and when you have something to say, they turn around, they say, well, I'm not listening to you anymore, because you've got them showing that they are not thinking clearly. How can God be mean if he doesn't exist, right? Okay, so... Um, uh, what God did was perfectly just, and it was completely our fault when we fell. Completely, wholly, and totally. We are in Adam, and therefore God is not responsible for the evil things that happen in this world to us. When a baby dies in a car crash, it's very bad. It was not God's fault. He would not have had that for that child, but he gives us free will. 
He gives us free will to put our child into a car and take the chance of getting on the highway and getting in an accident. If a boat gets into an accident and the guy that was skiing behind the boat dies, well, if he said, I don't want you in that boat, well, what kind of God are you? I want to go skiing today, right? It doesn't matter what we do. God is always to blame when in fact he gives us the will to go out and do something that could cause us harm. If we have children, by nature, we understand that there are diseases in the world and the child may die. In fact, up until recent times, it was the standard. If you read John Leslie or any of the people in his era, they'd have 10 children because four of them were inevitably going to die. It was a, it was a life of heartache. Some people lost all of their children, right? That was what happened. And this is the world we live in. And God never said, go out and have children so that they're going to die. It is our choice. So everything that happens ultimately comes back to us. God is good, God is gracious, and he allows us to make the choices that we are in. If we get in a car accident and it wasn't his fault, it's because I wanted to have pizza tonight and I didn't stay home, whatever, okay? So we have to think these issues through clearly. All right, the same is true with every other law given by God. The laws were just and holy and they were reasonable. But accepting God's, can you think of an unreasonable law in the law of Moses? Can you think of any that you've read? I've read it many times, and I can't think of anything that says this is unreasonable. I've read laws that I thought, I don't understand this. I've read laws that I thought, well, isn't that odd? Until I understood why he said it. One of the things he said is, don't wear garments of two sure. types of material. Has anybody ever said, why did God ask them to do that? It seems unusual. It's not unreasonable. He tells him not to do it. Why did he do it? Does anybody know the answer to that? There are two things. One is pictorial. The other is helpful. The helpful one is that if you have garments of two types of material back then and you wash them, what's going to happen? They're going to wear differently. That's right. Because they didn't have modern techniques like polyester that, you know, what do you call it? Uh, unshrinkable or whatever. Okay. They didn't have the techniques we do. So if you take linen and you take wool and you put them together, the garment is not going to last as long. He was looking out for their well-being, okay? Pictorially, he is, it is a picture of not mixing two incorrect things. I am not to mix Baal worship with the true worship of Jehovah, okay? I'm not to do this, and I'm not to do this and mix them together. When you mix things, inevitably, you come up with some type of fault. So there's a pictorial aspect, and there is also a helpful aspect, all right? We may not understand why he says those things, but he has a good reason, and none of them are ever, you can't find fault in them. You can't say, well, gee, that's not a fair law. None of them. They're all fair laws. It is his society. It is his people. And they agreed, by the way, before he gave them the law. And they said, they even said, uh, we will obey and we will hear. They agreed to obey before hearing. Okay, so they committed themselves to whatever. He, he could have said anything, and they would have had to have done it. And if they didn't, then they would have violated the words out of their own mouth. But he gave them a good law. Okay, the laws were just and holy, and they were reasonable. But accepting God's promise in Genesis 3.15, as well as those to Abraham, could only come by faith, because no law had been introduced along with them. Further, there is no law that could come along and fulfill the promises. They preceded any type of law and thus were grace. God's selection of the way he saves us is by grace. It is through faith by grace. It is the process. And that is what God has chosen to do. Old Testament and new, Abraham was saved 
by grace through faith and then the law came much later okay the only thing the introduction of a law could do would be to diagnose problems along the way but they couldn't provide a cure for the state of man he gives them a law and he says this is going to help you diagnose the problems that are in you you are going to find out through this law what is deficient when I've got a problem and I need to get fixed who do I go to I go to dr. bridges right because he's the one that has been trained in that type of thing he's the one that knows how to fix my problem that's what I'm going to do God gave them a law to show them how to be right with him and ultimately that law pointed only to one thing it pointed to Jesus because every time they tried to do the things of the law they failed and their people kept dying as far as I know I've read the Bible many times and I don't know anybody that's still alive from the Old Testament with the exception of Enoch who was raptured in Elijah who were raptured those are the only two right everybody else died okay so it was there to instruct them and it was there to show them that they needed something other than the law itself the man who does these things will live by them nobody's done it and all of a sudden comes Jesus and he did it and he's alive by it well then we must need what Jesus has okay so Melchizedek it doesn't say he is used as a type the people get Melchizedek way wrong they, they they say well um uh they it's a theophany or a pre uh, a, a, a it was jesus coming before yeah it, 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 how do people call it pre no, I, I, um, anyway they say it's a theophany of christ before he actually came that's not correct because in the book of hebrews it explains that he was a type of christ well you can't be a type of christ and not be christ or and be christ so he was a person and the point of melchizedek was that when he was introduced all they gave was that one three I think it was three verses that one occurrence of him where Abraham shows up he's uh, Melchizedek he's the king of Salem and uh, he uh, Abraham gave him the tithes of everything and they explain that in the book of Hebrews Melchizedek Melchizedek is king said is righteousness so he's king of righteousness sounds like Jesus he's Melech uh, Shalem the king of peace sounds like Jesus right or the king of Jerusalem yeah the king of peace and then um, he has no recorded genealogy throughout the Bible there's people with recorded genealogies we know when they were born and then we also know when they died Moses kicked off at this age at this place right he was 120 years old I think it was Mount Nebo and uh, uh, might not have been Mount Nebo maybe that was Aaron anyway um, so uh, we know when he was born he was died he's not a good picture of Christ in that sense but Melchizedek all it does is it gives just a short account of him so because he has no genealogy either at the beginning or afterward he's a type of Christ for the purpose of the Bible and that's why when David says you are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek he's saying this guy is still stands as a priest because there's no recorded death it doesn't mean he didn't die it just means that he stands as a type that's what that's saying so in the Old Testament there's nobody that didn't die everybody died with the exception of two people being raptured out before their death and I would go so far as to saying I've said it and I can justify it it would take us a while on the blackboard but Elijah and Enoch are coming back they are the two witnesses and they will both die in Jerusalem okay so they're gonna die anyway but um, that's coming soon to a uh, dispensation near you or actually the end of a dispensation near you in the uh, tribulation period but I can defend that you can go to Daniel 12 and you can get a hint of it actually you get a very good hint of it there that it's Enoch and Elijah and then you go to the book of Zechariah which speaks of the two lampstands and the two olive trees uh, these are the two that stand before the Lord 
And then the same terminology is used in Revelation. It doesn't say that it's Enoch and Elijah, but that's before the coming of Christ. So it can't be the Apostle John, as some people say, and it can't be Moses because Moses died. So you're left with only two possibilities, Enoch and Elijah. Anyway, but like I say, we can defend that more at some other time, but Melchizedek is a type of Christ, but he wasn't, he wasn't Christ and he also did die. It's just what was used of him was for a purpose. Okay, so it was uh, Nebo. what? It was Nebo. Mount Nebo. Good, good job, Charlie. Thank you. I'm glad you did that. Because um, I would have gone home and checked that. Anyway, they preceded any type of law of grace. The only thing the introduction of law could do would be to diagnose problems along the way, but they couldn't provide a cure for the state of man. In other words, the law can only condemn, it cannot save. There's no way that the law can save. The law will condemn. That's all there is to it because we already have sin in our lives. The law stands opposed to us because we are incapable of getting rid of that sin in our lives except through Jesus' fulfillment of it. Okay, Understanding these things leads to the fact that the law can only point out our sin and show the need for something else. We saw that this past Sunday with the sin offering part one. We're going to be in the sin offering part two. Part one was the sin of the high priest. Okay, Then we're going to have the sin of the whole congregation and then the sin of a leader, and then the sin of the common people. All categories of people are listed in the sin offerings. It may seem tedious. It may seem like, who cares about this? That's the law. But that is to show us the greatness of Jesus Christ, is that all of these things are detailed, every category, and how it points to him. Wonderful stuff. Anyway, um, uh, fallen man needs to be completely detached from the principles of the law in order to be brought to a place where, where there will be no transgression and thus no wrath. If you have a law, you are under that law. And if you are under that law, there is a possibility of violating that law. And as I said before, we already went down that path once in the garden. There's no need to go down it again. We have already gone down that path with the law of Moses. There's no need to go down that path again. It is done in Christ. But if there is a law, you need to be detached from it in order to live. The man who does these things will live by them. Nobody can do them, but Christ did them. And if we're in Christ, then we will live through Christ. Okay, so this is the marvel of Jesus' work. By coming in the form of a man without the stain of original sin, Jesus fulfilled the law that only condemns us. He then offers his perfection under the law to any who will receive it. This is what we talk about going from federal head to federal head. Adam is our federal head. He violated the law. All of us are in Adam. I said that during the prophecy update on Sunday, the picture of circumcision. We are born in sin. We are actually conceived in sin. We're born sinful from the moment that we, that the boy that uh, the lady emailed me about. One of the things that she said is that um, um, people are inherently good and he believes this. And I thought, well, I can tell you that he doesn't have children at this point, okay? But when he does someday, if he gets married, he's going to find out that people are not inherently good. That you have to teach children to do right. Because if you don't, they will incessantly do bad. And even when you teach them to do right, they still drive you nuts, don't they? A lot of gray hair here, and it wasn't because we're getting old. It's because we had children, okay? They will drive you up a wall, okay? They, and we did it to our parents, and our parents did it to their parents. Children inherently do not know to do good. They do know to do wrong immediately. Did you eat that thing? No, I didn't. And they did. You know they did, 
okay? They know to do wrong, okay? Um, he then offers his perfection under the law to any who will receive it. When it is so received, it brings us to that place where there is no transgression. The law is annulled in Christ, Hebrews 7, 8, and 10. It is annulled, it is obsolete, it is set aside, okay? And he, uh, Colossians 2, 14, it's nailed to the cross. If that is true, the law is being used as a metaphor for Christ. Christ was nailed to the cross, right? If the law was nailed to the cross, that means that the law died when Christ died. The law and Christ are are uh, they're what's the word when they're they, they're intertwined. intertwined thank you they are intertwined that's the picture that we got from the ark of the covenant the mercy seat with the law inside the law is inside of the ark all picture in christ the mercy seat is on top it's closed he embodies the law and where was the blood spread on the day of atonement uh, no 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 not on the horns of the altar on the day of atonement he went into the holy place and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat itself petitioning Splash. mercy what Splash. Sprinkled, Splashed. sprinkled, and not not on the altar. That's not that's a oh, zarak. Okay, okay. On here, it's yeah, nazah, yeah, yeah. and that's why you got to get the terminology right. It's sprinkled here, it's splashed there. Anyway, um, uh, that is on the day of atonement. Only once a year, he went behind there and he petitioned mercy. But that is a picture of Christ's body with the law inside, and we are petitioning the one who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. All of the symbolism of the ark and the mercy seat, all of the implements of the tabernacle. All of them pointed to Christ in detail, in order that was so astonishing. Remember that one sermon where the uh, the parts of the uh, the tabernacle, when they were described, followed the seven I am's of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, I am this. And they perfectly from Leviticus followed that. One, oh, my hair standing up on that. It's just, it's marvelous what is hidden in this, this wonderful word. Anyway, um, so when it is so received, it brings us to that place where there is no transgression. We receive Jesus grace and there is no transgression we have overcome the law which was contrary to us and therefore we have no wrath which can result from the law because through the knowledge of the law there can only be wrath there can't be salvation but when we have no law then there can be a propitious re relationship with god okay the place of inheritance which preceded the law by promise Abraham was given the promise before the law is therefore the only place of freedom from wrath. The inheritance is through Jesus. If you have grasped this, then you truly stand in the liberty, as he says in uh, this verse right here, verse 15, the liberty by which Christ has made us free. That's Galatians 5.1. It's not Romans, it's Galatians 5.1. Let me read you that, in fact. We'll go there. Galatians 5, verse 1. 2, 3, 4, 5. Verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. What is the yoke of bondage he's speaking about? The law. the law of Moses. Anybody that reinserts the law of Moses, as I said last week, is a heretic. They're a heretic, and I inappropriately uh, uh, tied the title to my friend uh, Stephen. I said, well, then he's the son of the devil. Because if you are promoting works-based salvation or returning to the law, you have fallen from grace. And that is another gospel, and Paul condemns that in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8. We cannot reintroduce the law without being a heretic. We cannot do it, okay? Um, so, uh, stand in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Paul would then ask you to not be entangled, as I just said, again with the yoke of bondage. You are free from the law and eternally saved by the work of Jesus. 
And that is the most glorious place to be. If you were saved, you were saved. He is the author of temporary salvation, right? Eternal salvation is what it says in the book of Hebrews, the author of eternal salvation. There's nothing temporary about it. Anybody that cannot understand once saved, always saved, has not properly processed what the Bible teaches. It teaches that Jesus Christ died for you to free you from the law. If you're not under law, then you cannot lose your salvation because there's nothing which will bring God's wrath. You are in Christ. If he were to condemn you, he would have to condemn Jesus, whose blood covers you. And he will never do that. He, he has eternally, eternally saved us. Okay? Life application for you to reintroduce the law after calling on Jesus can only bring a person into subjugation once again. That's what I just cited from Galatians. The law brings about wrath, not freedom. So stand firm in the freedom of Jesus Christ and let nothing hinder you from the prize. Great stuff. Okay, we can do another verse today. Verse 416. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of, of us soul. all. Okay, now let's go back and think about what I read you from the Reformed book just a while ago. We were talking about why do we do this, okay? What is the first words that he just read from that verse? Read them again. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. It comes by faith. Okay? It is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. It can't be just faith, and it can't be grace, because that is a gender discord with the word gift. Okay? It is the process. That is the gift. Okay? So, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. He's saying it is a faith that it might be according to grace. It is a process. It is not one or the other. It is a process. It is by faith that it might be according to grace. So that the promise, it does not say in this verse, by the way, that therefore it is regeneration for faith that it might be according to grace. It doesn't say that. It simply says that it is by faith. Where does faith come from? Does God put faith in you? and not in somebody else? Is that what happens? Does he say, you're not going to get faith? Does it say that when Jesus talked to any of the people? Somebody says, Lord, increase my faith. He didn't say, well, I'm going to regenerate you in order to have faith. The guy already has faith. He says, increase my faith. Jesus didn't rebuke him for saying, well, you don't have faith until I give it to you. People have faith. They may have small faith. And what did he say? If you have faith as big as a mustard seed, right? Okay, so faith is there. It's just that it's pretty small, but it's there. We see the good in God, and we respond to the good in him. It doesn't mean that we're regenerating ourselves. It means that God regenerates us when we see the good in him. And what is that good? It's Jesus. It's not Allah. It's not Krishna. It's not Buddha. It's not any of those things. We see what God has done in Jesus. You cannot see the good in God and worship Buddha, because Buddha was a fallen person. Okay? You cannot see the good in God and worship Krishna. Krishna is one of 300 million Hindu deities. God is not polytheistic. There is one God. It has to be on God's terms. And God has chosen the way of salvation, which is through his son. Okay? So, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. One thing described in, with two words, which now fit into the, the verse Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Okay? So that the promise might be sure to all the seed. 
okay? Not only to those who are of the law, which is the people of Israel under the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. Anybody that has the faith of Abraham, before he was given the sign of circumcision, Abraham had faith. He exercised that faith. He believed God, and God credited it to him for righteousness. It doesn't say God. It says, and he believed the Lord, and he credited it to him for righteousness. Anyway, but I was paraphrasing there. Right. But the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Here we go. Therefore, is Paul's note of conclusion for this particular line of thought. Because of these things, which we just looked at, the following is the conclusion. It is of faith. And this returns us to verse 13, which you started the uh, class with. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He's returning us back there with his therefore. When you see therefore, go back and see what it's there for, okay? The promise was through faith, and thus it stands by faith even now. God doesn't change. And the reason? That it might be according to grace. If the promise isn't of faith, then there would be no grace involved, right? If it's according to the law and he said, do this and this and this, then there's no grace involved. You're just simply being obedient. You're, you're earning your way. But Paul says that it is of grace. So it can't be of the law. Anything other than faith involves work. And we've already shown in a couple verses, one in particular two, three weeks ago, that faith is not a work. Paul disassociates faith from work. And that's another problem with Reformed theology. They say that faith is a work. You are claiming that you have done something in order to be saved. No, God did the saving. He sent his son to die on the cross. I simply believed it. That's not a work. Faith is not a work. Paul disassociated the two, faith and works. You are not working when you trust or when you believe or when you have faith, okay? Therefore, anything other than faith involves work, when work is included, then wages are due. I go to work, I work for 60 hours, I get 40 hours of regular pay and 20 hours of overtime pay. It's not grace. I do it. I've done something for you, now you need to do something for me. You have to fulfill what you have promised, okay? As was noted in Romans 4 verse 3, and which should be repeated, one, deeds of the law or works do not lead to justification. They do not and they cannot. 2A, Faith is not something required within the context of the law. The law is of works and demands perfect obedience. The man who does these things will live by them. It demands obedience. If you do it, you will get your reward. It's a pay-for-work uh, deal there, okay, to be. But by faith, a person is justified and declared righteous. It's not of the law. It's of grace. Therefore, three, because the law demands works and faith is not a requirement under the law, then faith cannot be a work. Everybody understand that? Let me read it again so you get it. Therefore, because the law demands works and faith is not a requirement under the law, then faith cannot be a work. That is where they have completely missed this, and their entire theology is built on a false premise. Faith is not a work. If it was, then you would get paid for your faith, and it is not. They've built their theology on a false premise. I'm not saying that they're heretics, but I'm saying that they are now leading down a wrong path, and the people that sit in their churches, why go evangelize anybody? Why go to the missions on Friday or Saturday morning and talk to people about Jesus? 
And why go to church at all? If God regenerates you in order to believe and his will is in, you, it's irresistible, then why do anything? Either I'm saved or I'm not. It doesn't matter. He's done it all. And that is not what the Bible teaches. One, it matters on your choice to call on Jesus, and it also matters on your choice to grow in Jesus. The people in this class and anybody online right now are growing in Jesus, and there are 10 billion people in America right now that go to churches on Sunday night, and they're sitting at home watching football, or they're doing something else, and they're not growing in Christ. And I'm not trying to discredit them. I'm just saying that what they are doing is their choice. It is their priority. Your choice is what will set your priorities, and your priorities are what the Lord will reward you with or what he will take away your rewards with. I, I know two people in here that watch Les Feldick twice a day, every day, right? They are learning the word of God. This is their priority. There are other things you could be doing, right? There are a lot of things. You could go out fishing. or you, There are all kinds of things you could be doing. I want to know Jesus, and I want to understand the word of God. Why? Because that's my priority. And there they do it. They sit there and they watch less, and then they can't believe it, but they come here on Thursday night. So they're they're wanting to know something. And they, as I always say, when you listen to somebody and he says something wrong, then you can evaluate what is right. So they come here to find out what's wrong. So the one they, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, I just. So, so I'm curious when uh, the Ligonniers go out uh, and their mission. I can't they, even imagine. Yeah, what do you ask them? What do you tell somebody when, you know, God is, he's going to regenerate you if you, yeah, have you been, what do you say to somebody about that? There is such a disconnect in it. Anyway, we'll go on. Uh, I just, I don't understand. We bring this up when we're downtown a lot. We'll be talking about that exact issue. Um, Let's see here. um, Where was I? But Paul has clearly shown clearly and concisely using both David and Abraham that faith, that it is a faith and therefore it might be according to grace. The faith leads to the grace. It's an entire process which God has allowed. That is his gift of salvation, okay? And the reason is clear, which is, he says right in this verse, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. The term all the seed must be apart from the law because the promise was made prior to the law. In Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them came before the law. The promise stands even though there was no law at the time. If this is the pattern, and it is also the pattern through David, who was under the law, remember what David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He said it, and he was a man under law, okay? Then it is all-encompassing, all-encompassing to all the seed and not only to those who are of the law. The law provided salvation even for people that couldn't meet the law through the Day of Atonement, okay? I can't wait till we get to Leviticus 16. What a, what a chapter understanding the work of Jesus Christ. It's the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And it's a long read. It's a hard read. When you read it, you think, oh, why does he keep repeating what he said in 15 other chapters already in Leviticus? And he hasn't. He said the same thing in some details, but then he adds in something new, and it is so beautiful what he's showing us on the Day of Atonement. You talk about God's grace, God's gift, Leviticus 16. Oh, wow. About a year or two? No, we should be there soon. I typed up uh, Leviticus, I think I'm typing Leviticus 10 this coming Monday, I think. So we're getting close. I'm trying to do about a chapter at a time because there is a lot of repetition, and I try not to repeat things. I just say, this was said in this verse, and if you want to go back and look at it, great. So I try not, you know, we have to go on, and you have to get through these things. 
but it shouldn't be too long. It might be two months or so. We'll be there. Um, maybe even less. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, uh, where was, oh, David, under the law, then is all encompassing. Any of faith may receive God's grace. Anyone lacking faith, regardless of whether they are of the law or not, are excluded. Say that again. If you are in the law, the people of Israel, and you have no faith, you are excluded from the promise of Abraham. And the people of Israel don't want to hear that, even to this day. I'm circumcised, I'm a Jew, I'm on my way to heaven. It doesn't work that way. You have to be of faith, and it has to be properly directed faith. Okay? If they don't, on the Day of Atonement, abase themselves, as is required according to the law, Leviticus chapter 23, there won't be any atonement for them. There will be no atonement. It is always of faith that leads you to salvation, even of the law. And that's what David showed us. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He's writing the psalm. The psalm is in the Psalter. Jesus confirms that the Psalter is a part of the Bible, and it's a part of the inspired word of God, and therefore it must be true. It is all-encompassing, okay? It is astonishing how many people miss what is being said here in Romans. Instead, they tear verses out of context in order to justify that we are bound to the constraints of the law. And yet, the law demands such things as going to Jerusalem to sacrifice three times a year. Anybody doing that? Any of these people that are Hebrew roots that tell you, you know, you need to be uh, observing this feast or you need to be circumcised or you need to not eat pork? Do, have you seen any one of them go three times a year to a pil pilgrim feast in Jerusalem? Okay, they haven't. They're violating the law. I don't care if they say, well, there's no temple in Jerusalem, so we can't do it. It doesn't matter. That is a prescription under the law. If you're not doing it, you are in violation of the law. And I could pick out 10,000 other things that they do every single day, like wearing clothes with two materials in it, right? That's a part of the law. And I guarantee you that if you go up to them, they're not wearing all wool or they're not all wearing all linen. They're wearing clothes of two different materials. Why aren't they sacrificed? Do you think some of them are? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that that's one of the things that's required under the law. Well, what they've done in the, the Talmud is they've said, well, we can now do mitzvot, so we can do deeds of righteousness, and we can do these things in order to please God because we can't go down to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that. That is their codification of the Jewish law in the Talmud saying, well, we can do this in place of that. No, you are under punishment because you are out of the land of Israel because you disobeyed and you crucified Jesus Christ to a cross and you didn't repent of that. Acts chapter 2. Some Jews did, they are saved. Some Jews did not, and they are not saved. Collectively, as a people, they are out until they call on Jesus as a nation collectively. Individuals can be saved collectively they are not God's people but God is preparing them for that once again he has reestablished them back in the land he has given them the ability to defend themselves he's given them the ability also to suffer all of the things that the Bible says is going to happen to them all of these things are preparing them for the day when they say Baruch Hashem Adonai blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and until they do that he is not coming back to save them and they're going to continue to suffer. The Bible is written, it says it, it's very clear, but the Talmud cannot replace what God's word says. If they are under the law, they must do the deeds of the law. Okay, and I'm gonna bring up one interesting point about that. Uh, when in my opening comments of the sermon this week, I'm gonna speak about somebody here in Sarasota who is doing exactly what you're saying. And I'm gonna say that if he was doing the things of the law, then I, I'm gonna make a logical 
connection and you're gonna say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, that'll just be in the opening comments of it, but it'll make sense to you. Are you guys gonna be here next Thursday? Or are you leaving? Are you, no, <laughs> this is your, you will be here next Thursday. Good, okay, I know you're not here next Sunday. Right. Yeah, this Sunday, but not next Sunday, but I wasn't sure about those. Okay. physically, I don't know about mentally. Well, mentally, maybe not. Okay. Yeah, I bet you got a lot to do before you go up every year, so. Okay, I just, I, I'm glad to have remembered that because I wanted to ask you that, and then I got into class, so. Okay, um, so, um, uh, any of faith may receive God's grace, anyone lacking, regardless of whether they are under the law, is excluded. The promise is by grace, through faith only. It is to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, meaning all believers as Abraham believed. And as, as I said, it's astonishing that people get this wrong. The law demands such things as going to Jerusalem to sacrifice three times a year. It demands that not wearing, well, I brought that in, two clothes of two types of material, wool and linen. It demands circumcision and Sabbath observance and on and on and on. Any violation of the law does what? It voids the law. It breaks the whole law. That's found in James chapter 2, verse 10. If you violate one precept of the law, the law is broken. Okay? So if you are right now a Hebrew roots person watching this and you're wearing clothes with two types of material in it, you have broken the law. The law is null and void to you. And you have no sacrifice for your sins because you've rejected the grace of Jesus Christ. You will be excommunicated when you stand before God at the great white throne. You must trust in Jesus and him only for your salvation. Yes? Charlie, uh, the thing that pops in my mind when I think about this faith issue is, you know, Abraham was very, was tested oh, yeah. in his faith very severely, and so was Job. Yeah. A lot of people were very severely tested to see, you know, whether they really believed, if they were well, the Lord knew that they believed. I, I think it was more for examples for us and to give us examples not only of their faith, but also that we can endure as they did. Look at David. You know, when people email me with, uh, you know, they'll say, well, why am I suffering like this? Why am I? And I get this a lot. Why am I suffering? Is God mad at me? I have somebody that emailed me just not too long ago with exactly this. And I won't say what country this person is in, but they have medical needs. And is God mad? Is there something I'm doing wrong? And I took David and I sent it off to her. I said, listen, David was God's favored king. He's Israel's sweet psalmist, as he's called. A man after God's own heart. 400 years after he was dead, he was saying, yet I will preserve Jerusalem for the sake of my servant David. And I say, if God loved David that much, why did he allow him to suffer when he was old, where he could not get warm for one minute. He couldn't get warm even when they piled covers on top of him. Why would he allow it? Because he is God, and he can do whatever he wants. And if he's giving us an example, look at Isaac. How long was Isaac lying in bed blind? Over 40 years of his life, he lay in bed blind. Why? Because God is sovereign. And Isaac didn't, you know, he, he trusted, he had faith in God, he kept his faith in him. He understood the promises. Abraham, he got off a little better than most. He died, you know, in good shape and full of years. And Moses, same thing. His eyes weren't diminished and his natural vigor wasn't diminished. 120 years old. But other people suffered and God is sovereign. So when somebody emails you with a question like that, say, you know what? The Lord may be using you for an example for somebody else. And what a modern perfect example of suffering is Bill Bright, founder of, uh, what was it? Uh, Youth for Campus Christ, Crusade. Campus Crusade for Christ. Thank you died of lung disease and he suffered immensely 
And yet he kept his testimony right until the last day of his life. He was just all about Jesus, even in his immense suffering, okay? He is an example to other people. And that's what we need to do is when somebody asks why, to get your eyes off of yourself. I know that it's terrible. I know that you're suffering. I'm sorry. I'm there with you in prayer. But the Lord can use you to affect somebody else. That's a really important lesson. So, But I don't think it was that he was testing their faith. Now, it does say that he did that with King Hezekiah. He said the Lord removed himself from him to test him, okay, to see what was in his heart. So it was a test for Hezekiah, not for the Lord, but he was testing Hezekiah. Are you going to be faithful to all the, the goodness I've given to you? So the, the test was for Hezekiah. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, James 2.10, one violation breaks the whole law. And yet while ignoring all of these tenets, all of these things that you're supposed to do found under the law, I'm speaking about people that reintroduce the law, they still claim that adherence to the law is required. How can you do that when you're not doing this, 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 and this, and this, but you're still required to not eat pork? It's a confused thinking. And what it comes right from the devil himself. It comes right from the devil that says, that wasn't sufficient. That was not sufficient, and you need to please God on your own. And if you don't do it, God's going to be angry at you, and he's going to take away your trip to heaven. When, in fact, exactly the opposite is true. Your trip to heaven is found only in the cross. There is a narrow path, and there is a wide path right? The narrow path leads to the broad open spaces of heaven. The wide path leads to the cramped confines of hell. And it's our choice and our choice alone. The cross, always the cross. Okay. So, um, it, oh, I said that life application. Oh yeah. We'll have time for one more. Uh, yes, we will. Verse after verse has come to the same irre irrefutable conclusion. We are not under the law, but we are under grace. It's so important that we need to be reminded again and again and again and again. I have to remind myself of this. You know, I know it's a class, and why does he keep saying the same things? There are times where I have to remind myself, you know what, stop. You know, we were talking about shellfish, one of us, before class, you know, and it was you. And he was kidding, but the fact is that there's a time where you might say, I wonder if I should be eating this or not. Of course I am. I'm free to eat. But you have to remind yourselves because the devil is always there trying to get you to question question your faith in Jesus and what is right and what isn't. So um, it is the principal tenet of Paul's writings, and yet we continue to miss it. Stand firm on the gospel. Do not let yourselves be brought again under the yoke of bondage. Okay? And seeing as how uh, we're still talking about Paul, where do we get our doctrine from for the church age? Paul. Paul. If you go anywhere else to get your church age doctrine, your Gentile-led church age doctrine, you are going to have a uh, contradiction in your theology. It does not mean that we don't read the book of James. It doesn't mean that we don't read the book of Esther. It doesn't mean that we don't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We read all of them. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for uh, instruction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. That uh, Anyway, you know the verse, uh, to Timoth uh, Timothy 3.16. Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, right? Okay, there we go. Um, anyway. You read that verse and you remember it. All scripture is useful. All scripture is profitable. But we get our church age doctrine from the 13 letters written by Paul. And we can add in Hebrews for understanding how Christ is the fulfillment of the law. It's not addressed to the church age, but it is, it is very useful for helping us to understand how Christ overcame the law and what it means for us. Anyway. And, and the author of Hebrews is not... I think it's Paul. Well, I do too. Uh, oh, okay. But I'm just saying it's, it's, it. Oh, that's right. It's not signed. It's not right. signed. It's a it's an unsigned epistle, and I think that's intentional because if Paul wrote it, and I, I like I said, I've shown a few verses which 
will confirm to you that Paul wrote it. If you don't remember him, I can tell him to you. But um, uh, I, the reason, why do you think God would have, if Paul wrote it, and we'll assume that he did, why would he not have Paul's signature on because that? Because the Jews do not The Paul. Jews do not want to read anything by Paul. He's the worst guy in the world, and if Paul had signed his name to that letter, they would not read the letter to the Hebrews. But because it says to the Hebrews, and it doesn't have any signature, it suddenly is appealing to them. And as I said before, I think it was in this class, maybe not, it's worth repeating again. At his church, I mean, he, he does good things, but at his church he had a couple that attended, a male and a female, husband and wife, they attended his church and they were Jewish. And they weren't always believers in Christ. They were, one was, we'll say, I don't remember what they were. We'll say one was a doctor and one was a lawyer, okay? The doctor went somewhere on a doctor's trip, and the wife went somewhere, the lawyer went somewhere on a lawyer's trip on the same day. He picked up the Bible, and he read the book of Matthew. It's written to the Jews, king of the Jews, and he converted to Christ. And on the same day, in another hotel across the country, she picked up the book of Hebrews, and she read it, and she came to Christ on the same day, go and they Gideon. attended in his church. What? Go Gideon. Yeah, go Gideon, right? Right? So God's word is effective for saving, but if it said the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, she probably would not have read it. That's my guess, because he is a bad sore to the Jewish people, because he's the heretic that writes about Gentiles coming into the church, okay? It is amazing how God has written his word so that even something I believe, I'm certain it's written by Paul, has the power to save because it's not signed by Paul. Wonderful stuff. Okay, 416, did you read the verse? I did, 17. Oh, 17, wait a minute, yes, yeah, 17, go ahead. We got 13 minutes, so we'll do it. 16 over if you want. No, we can do it again. Okay. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Oh boy, unreal. Let me read that again. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations, speaking to Abraham, in the presence of him whom he, meaning Abraham, believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as if they did. God is all-powerful. Okay, verse 17. This is a continuation of the previous verse. Let me read it again. Therefore, it is of faith, so that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written. And then he quotes Abraham, okay? So, to support this, Paul returns to the fountain of Scripture, as it is written. When a thing can be argued over and debated against, the surest way to prove one's claim is to return to the source of the matter, okay? I bought that, it is mine. No, you didn't, it's mine. I bought that. It, yes. You pull out the receipt and you say, here it is. Check the serial number, and if it matches, it's mine. You just go back to the source. Whatever it is, if it's a lien on a house, I paid that off. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Here's the payment, the final payment with your signature saying you've received it. Go back to the source, and that will end all arguments, or it should. Anyway, um, the surest way to prove one's claim is to go back to the source. When this avenue is taken, argumentation is clearly quickly cleared up, okay? God spoke to Abraham. I have made you a father of many nations. The term I have made is tetheka. Oh, just so you know, 
reading the Greek word reminded me. Will Groban had a baby. Oh, yeah. So if you uh, if you know Will, send him a, a, a hello or a whatever and let him know that you're very proud of him. He has a child and uh, uh, Sophia, I think, or Sophia, which is wisdom. I think that's what he said her name is. But uh, Will had a baby. So there you go. And um, well, Will did. His, his wife, wife did. did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't see her on Facebook. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So, anyway, I want to thank him. Um, uh, the word is tetheka. Uh, it is used to indicate a granting or a con constituting of a matter. This promise was spoken to Abraham as if it was complete. Okay? Uh, where was I? Um, in God's mind, the promise is as if it is already accomplished. He made the promise. It's done. I've made you the father of many nations. It is done. It is accomplished. Even though it's two, 3,000 years later that it actually will come to pass, it is done. Abraham was given the promise from God. And he simply believed it, despite its otherwise incredible nature. If you know the story of Abraham, you know how incredible it would be for him to hear that. But the promise was, after all, from God, who gives life to the dead. This uh, phrase is certainly speaking of the deadness of Sarah's womb. He says, gives life to the dead. Sarah had a dead womb. Okay, so speaking of her womb, which is referred to in verse 19. We'll get to that next week. However, because it is speaking of the calling of life from a dead womb. It demonstrates that God can call anything to life. And so through the dead womb of Sarah will come the one who would restore man's spiritually dead condition. So it's almost like a pun what he's doing. He's taking one thing and he's equating it to another. Life from the dead will result in life from the dead. It's wonderful. It's just marvelous. Um, this is evidenced by Abraham's declaration of righteousness in Genesis 15, verse 6. Each step of Abraham's life is used to show us the pattern of our own calling. It is God who restores us to life and calls those things which do not exist as they did, as Paul wrote in verse 18. Abraham would be a father of many nations. People who appeared to be outside of God's chosen line are called into it too, surprisingly enough. Those who were once afar off, us, Gentiles, not a part of the covenant people, were brought near. Those who are dead are called to life. The relationship which did not yet exist in our temporal reality is spoken of by God in a manner as if it already did, and therefore it does. Okay, God is outside of time when he says something. When we have a word of prophecy in the Bible, all we have to do is trust that he is there already. He already sees it. Okay, when he, they asked him about the resurrection from the dead, Jesus said, I am not the, or he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He spoke of, uh, what was it, Abraham, Isaac, and I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, because to God, all are alive. Everything is happening right now with him. If you have a train going down a track that's 20,000 miles long, the beginning and the end are all right there to him. It's all the same. He knows every single thing immediately and intuitively. He doesn't need to guess about it. When he says that Israel will be restored, we can guess that it will. When he says that if Jerusalem is going to be divided, we don't have to guess if it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen. He's outside of time. The book of Revelation, as scary as it is, is written. It is done. And when it says that we're going to be in a paradise and the water is going to go down there and we're going to see the face of God for all eternity, he's already there. We are already there in his mind. We just have to get through this crummy part right now before we get there. And, you know, every time you have to go to the hospital or every time you have to pain and you wake up and you think, I just don't want to get up out of bed today, we're already there in paradise in his mind. So you can kind of 
look past the temporary and get to the eternal, at least in your head sometimes. So um, life application, oh, just in time too. The Bible is full of promises which are still future to us now. Oh, just what I was talking about. And yet they are spoken of as if they've already come about. For example, it says that those who are called are also glorified. It also says that when we were saved, God raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, um, what verse is that? That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, right in that area. I think it's verse 7. These haven't happened yet in our stream of existence, and yet to God who is outside of time, they have already occurred. When you're feeling as if everything is against you and God has forgotten you, remember this. In his mind, you are already seated in Christ Jesus in heaven. It is done, and it will never be taken away. Your salvation is eternal, and your hope is already realized. Isn't that marvelous? It's just wonderful how, how great God is to, to uh, give us this promise and to know that it's certain. And, you know, the thing is that the Bible is one of those self-validating things because he has proven through prophecy already so we don't need to worry if the rest of the prophecies are going to fail or if they're going to pass. We have the template already. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. What are we going to say? Well, that one's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Not in my mind. Not in my mind. It is as sure as it can be. It is going to happen. So, faith. faith. I have faith that that is going to happen. That's right. Rick, would you close us in prayer tonight? Sure. Thank you. Nice and loud. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for these great words and, and Charlie's wisdom and his teaching and the hard work into these situations to help us to clearly better understand, I wouldn't say clearly to make, but better understand all that goes on in your word. Uh, we thank you so much for the fact that faith and grace are coupled together and uh, we have eternity because of the grace that you gave us by shedding your blood on the cross for us and nothing that we could ever do to earn that salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back up the camera, and um, would you go get the dog and put him up there so they can see him? No, sure, no problem. It's okay. No, 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 it's okay. They, they've got to say goodbye to the baby, too. So let's see. No, that's all right. We're going to go to break. The dog's got, they've got to see the dog. So uh, this is our newest addition here, which if you watch the Prophecy Updates, you see him anyway. But okay. All right, here we go. Here comes the, go up a little closer. It's coming, a little closer. Go up to that camera. Up higher, and there you go. There's our baby. Okay, we love you all. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you guys later. That's our little baby. Yeah. That's what the Jews were worried about, that everything was going to the dogs. Everything's going to the dogs. That's right. Oh, goodness gracious. Rover. Uh, okay, I've got to mark where we were. What verse did we just do? 18? 17. 18 next week. 20, I can't see. Where are my glasses? Or 18 next week. I got to take the dog. I won the dog. I was the first radio ever. There's a song that's When you see broken beyond repair, I see clean beyond belief. Oh, that's like what Dwight Moody said. That's the same idea. Look for big things. I like that. When you see broken beyond repair. I love that. That is great.